Welcome to PQ Talk on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Tamania, coming from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med-ed in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. So welcome to an episode of a seven-year-old male who presents to the PICU after a severe motor vehicle accident. Here is the case presented by Rahul. A seven-year-old male is admitted to the PICU after sustaining severe trauma. The patient was brought to the emergency department after a motor vehicle accident which involved an 18-wheeler truck and the family's car. In this severe accident, the seven-year-old was noted to be restrained. However, upon impact, was ejected from the vehicle. He was unconscious and had multiple injuries, including a laceration on the head and bruising on the chest. The emergency medical response team was activated and the patient presented to the emergency department for acute stabilization. Upon examination, the patient was found to have a GCS score of 8, indicating a serious head injury, and the patient also had multiple bruises and abrasions on the chest and arms. His pulse was rapid but weak. The patient was resuscitated with colloid and blood products, intubated, and transferred to the pediatric ICU for further management. Notably, the CT scan of the head showed a skull fracture and a subdural hematoma. A chest x-ray showed multiple rib fractures and bilateral pulmonary opacities with no evidence of pneumothorax. The patient was also found to have a grade 2 liver laceration and a splenic injury. Pelvic x-ray and cardiac fast exam were unrevealing. So to summarize key elements from this case, this 7-year-old male has traumatic brain injury, pulmonary contusions, and is at risk for pediatric ARDS, or commonly known as PARDS, has liver and spleen injury, has anemia. Pertinent negatives include no pelvic injuries or injuries to the great vessels in the chest. So Rahul, let's approach the PQ medical management of this case based on a culmination of various recently published guidelines in the pediatric critical care literature. Namely, let's use this case to dive deeper into the guidelines for traumatic brain injury, transfusion and anemia expertise initiative, commonly known as TAXI guidelines, pediatric blunt liver and spleen injury management, known as the ATOMIC protocol, as well as general PQ management of acute trauma. So as we take the management of this pediatric trauma patient in a system-based fashion, let's first go into the management of pediatric traumatic brain injuries. So Rahul, can you start us off with some key management considerations in this patient, please? Absolutely. This is such a vast topic, and I'm going to try to summarize some key points. So number one, based on the March 2019 Traumatic Brain Injury Guidelines published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, this patient should have a intracranial pressure or ICP monitor or even an external ventricular drain or EVD placed for CSF diversion in consultation with the neurosurgery and trauma team. A cerebral perfusion pressure, or CPP, of at least 50 in our 7-year-old patient and ICP of less than 20 has actually been shown to improve outcomes and reduce mortality. Just as a quick review, CPP stands for cerebral perfusion pressure, which is the pressure that maintains 
blood flow to the brain. The formula for CPP is CPP is equal to MAP, which is mean arterial pressure, minus the ICP, which is the intracranial pressure. Thanks so much for that highlight, Pradeep. So monitoring does not affect outcomes directly. Rather, the information from monitoring can actually be used to direct treatment decisions. Now, treatment informed by data from monitoring may result in better outcomes than treatment informed solely by clinical assessment. In short, I think it's important for us to have qualitative and quantitative data to optimize decision-making in these patients. So Pradeep, as we have talked about ICP control being so crucial for this patient, do you mind talking to us a little bit about some practical points in controlling ICP or intracranial pressure? I think that's a very good question, Rahul. Simple things like appropriate patient positioning, head midline, elevated 15 to 30 degrees, make certain that the cervical collar is not too tight but allows for venous drainage from the skull is recommended. Control fever, treat hypoxia, hypercarbia, and avoid hypotension. Sedation and analgesia is at the discretion of the treating physician, but routine boluses must be avoided to prevent cerebral hypoperfusion. Also, continuous use of propofol for sedation or ICP management is not recommended by these guidelines. That's a great initial set of practical management tips, which include number one, head position, temperature control to avoid hyperthermia, avoidance of hypotension to ensure optimal cerebral perfusion pressures. And to your point, propofol may actually have a deleterious effect in some patients as it can reduce the systemic vascular resistance or SVR and predispose patients to hypotension, especially when employed in a bolus fashion. Rahul, what about neuromuscular blockade use in these patients? So neuromuscular blockade is a balance, and it actually may be required if the intracranial pressure remains elevated despite adequate sedation. Muscle relaxation can also prevent shivering, as well as improve patient ventilator synchrony. It may permit hyperventilation if it is required. Intermittent dosing of short-acting agents such as VEC or ROC are preferred as first lines. Now, let's talk a little bit about seizure prophylaxis, and patients usually are going to have levetiracetam or Keppra or phenytoin as their seizure prophylaxis to prevent post-traumatic seizures, and this may be recommended for especially the first seven days. Uncontrolled seizures can actually increase intracranial pressure. Now, speaking of intracranial pressure, for ICP management, any intracranial pressure of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury that is sustained for greater than five minutes requires intervention. So what are our tiers of therapy? Well, first tier is going to include CSF drainage if the patient has an EVD, bolus or infusion of hypertonic saline, as well as sedation, analgesia, and even neuromuscular blockade. Second tier therapies are used for refractory intracranial hypertension, and this may be up to 40% of severe traumatic brain injury cases. In this situation, you may consider hyperventilation, talking to your neurosurgeons for the role of decompressive craniectomy, or any sort of palliative treatment that can help remove a mass lesion. And remember, you may need to stabilize these patients and get a repeat CT if there is a clinical change. Other considerations may include moderate hypothermia anywhere between 32 to 34 degrees centigrade, a barbiturate coma, or higher levels of hyperosmolar therapy. I think, Rahul, this is a good time to incorporate an essential 
physiologic concept, which is of cerebral metabolic rate of oxygenation, or simply known as CMRO2. Now, CMRO2 refers to cerebral metabolic rate of oxygenation, which is basically a measure of the amount of oxygen used by the brain. Now, CMRO2 can be increased during periods of increased neural activity, such as seizures, hypercapnia, hypoxia, increased temperature, and increased ICP. Now, it is important to note that these factors can impact the brain's oxygen consumption, and in some cases, an increase in CMRO2 can lead to a decline in brain function if the brain is not able to adequately meet its increased oxygen demand. Now, let's pivot to the next organ system in this patient. Our patient has bilateral pulmonary contusions and may be at risk for PARDS. So, Rahul, what would be your mechanical ventilation strategy in this patient? Absolutely. And as mentioned, our patient has bilateral contusions, which put him at risk for pediatric ARDS or PARDS. Now, one study reported that pediatric ARDS in children with pulmonary contusion is independently associated with lower GCS score. This patient is at risk for pediatric ARDS based on presence of bilateral contusions and the initial GCS of 8. Incidence of pediatric ARDS in traumatic brain injury is about 9%, and its presence is associated with significantly increased morbidity and mortality. And this has been established, especially in a recent journal article published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2020. Now, there are really no clear oxygenation and ventilation guidelines in traumatic brain injury-associated pediatric ARDS. However, I think it is prudent to kind of consider the use of positive pressure. And in particular, we should really avoid high positive inspiratory pressures and high PEEP in these patients and kind of create that sweet spot balance as oxygenation also is imperative in the management of these patients. Remember that high PEEP may increase intrathoracic pressure and may actually impede venous drainage. Typically, for ventilation, you want to target a PCO2 of 35 to 45 and avoid hyperventilation to prevent cerebral ischemia due to decreased cerebral blood flow. But again, Pradeep, this is going to be a balance. So to summarize, pediatric ARDS in TBI occurs in about 10% of the patients. It is important to pay attention to the cardiopulmonary interactions of increased positive intrathoracic pressure as this can have effects on preload to the heart as well as venous drainage from the cerebral vasculature. Absolutely. So, Pradeep, what about fluid status in these patients? Additionally, Rahul, in these patients, we need to pay very close attention to their fluid balance. Treat hypovolemia with isotonic fluids, like normal saline, to achieve normal rather than excess volume status. We should avoid administration of hypotonic fluids, such as D5W. Although recent evidence from basic science research and observational studies suggest that using balanced crystalloids rather than saline may have beneficial effect on acid-base balance, renal physiology, and patient outcomes, we need to be careful about using balanced fluids such as lactated ringer in TBI patients so as to not cause iatrogenic hyponatremia. Although adult studies have reported poor outcomes with fluid overload in TBI patients, this has not been shown in pediatric TBI studies. 
Drawing from adult studies, it is best to be vigilant about fluid balance and avoid fluid overload at this time. That is a great highlight, Pradeep. And just to summarize, I think us as intensivists should really pay close attention to not only fluid balance, but serum electrolytes and glucose while managing these trauma patients. I think serum sodium should at least be monitored twice daily in these TBI patients, if not more frequently. And if hyponatremia develops despite the use of normal saline, I think clinically we should really keep SIADH or cerebral salt wasting at the top of our differential. So our patient in the case was noted in the PQ to become progressively hypothermic. Rahul, can you highlight the effect of hypothermia in the setting of pediatric trauma? Yes. So I think it is really important for us to review the terrible triad of trauma. Now, this is also known as the triad of death. And the triad of death in trauma refers to a combination of three physiologic conditions that often can occur together and significantly increase the risk of death in trauma patients. The triad of death is a dangerous state as each component can contribute to the others, exacerbating the risk of death. The triad includes hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy, particularly DIC. Now, early recognition and aggressive management of these conditions is crucial in improving outcomes in patients. So Rahul, let's wrap this session up by talking about hyperglycemia. A patient was noted to have few blood sugars around 200 milligram percent during the first four hours of his PQ admission. Can you shed some light on this topic, please? Absolutely. So hyperglycemia is also commonly seen in traumatic brain injury patients. And the optimal strategy for glucose administration or control remains pretty controversial, although it's reasonable to hold patients who have severe hyperglycemia in the first 48 hours after trauma with just non-dextrose-containing fluids. This may be different if you have an infant, for example, who has immature glycogen stores, but remember that this hyperglycemia may be transient in the setting of their severe stress response. The last part of this episode will cover a bit on transfusion in the critical care setting, as well as management of blunt abdominal trauma. So Pradeep, our patient was noted to eventually have a initial hemoglobin of 6.8 and an INR of 1.8. So how should we really tackle anemia and balance the elevated INR in this trauma patient? That's an excellent question. This is a very frequent clinical scenario that we kind of see in trauma patients admitted to the PQ. Now, per the Pediatric Transfusion and Anemia Expertise Initiative, which is the TEXI guidelines, uh, which were published in uh, the PCCM journal in 2022, the guideline concluded that there is insufficient pediatric evidence to support specific thresholds for coagulation tests, including INR and platelet count, and the transfusion of plasma and platelets in critically ill patients with severe trauma moderate to severe TBI or non-traumatic intracranial bleeding. It is unclear if an INR of 1.8 would change much with an FFP transfusion. Some studies have reported a significant change in INR after FFP transfusion only if the INR was greater than 2.5. Now, if a procedure such as ICP monitor or EVD is being considered at the bedside, I think the neurosurgery team would suggest FFP administration for an INR greater than 1.5. I think similarly, it's reasonable to target a platelet count of greater than 100 during the neurosurgical procedure, although it is not necessary 
to continue maintaining platelet count of more than 100K once hemostasis is achieved. So what about blood transfusion, Rahul? Absolutely. So even though there is a lack of evidence in pediatric patients, the taxi cab experts concluded that a balanced resuscitation strategy or ratio for red blood cell, plasma, and platelet administration, you should be thinking about a ratio of 1 to 1 to 1 or 2 to 1 to 1 in injured children with hemorrhagic shock or with life-threatening hemorrhage, specifically if you are going to be activating your institution's massive transfusion protocol. This transfusion strategy can be stopped once the hemorrhage is controlled. And, you know, in our case, the patient had no ongoing bleeding or shock, so the massive transfusion protocol was not necessarily used. The hemoglobin in our patient was 6.8, and based on the 2018 taxi cab guidelines published in PEDCCM, in critically ill children with acute brain injury, you should target a transfusion threshold of about 7 to 10. And so it would be reasonable to transfuse this patient PRBCs. Now, they also recommend against the use of invasive brain oxygenation monitoring to guide RBC transfusion. So make sure you're constantly thinking about labs as well as clinical assessments. So to summarize this portion of transfusion, I think once hemostasis is achieved in a trauma patient, it is reasonable to watch the trend in CBC coagulation profile every 12 hours. It is not necessary to maintain a platelet count of more than 100,000 once hemostasis is achieved. Similarly, the routine correction of an INR below 2 with FFP is not recommended as studies show a significant change in INR with FFP only when the INR is more than 2.5. In patients with acute brain injury, RBC transfusion must be considered to target a hemoglobin between 7 to 10 grams per deciliter. Thanks so much for that summary, Pradeep. So to wrap up our episode, this patient sustained liver and splenic injury. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about the ATOMIC guidelines? Absolutely. So ATOMIC stands for Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma, Memphis, Arkansas Consortium, or the ATOMIC Consortium, which consists of a group of level one pediatric trauma centers from across the United States dedicated to performing clinical and preclinical studies aimed at optimizing management and functional outcome of injured children. Their strongly recommended guidelines include management of pediatric blunt liver spleen injury may be based on hemodynamic status rather than injury grade, a shortened period of bed rest of one day or less for stable children with unchanged hemoglobin levels, a transfusion threshold of 7 gram per deciliter is reasonable for children undergoing non-operative management, unstable patients should be considered for surgery, urgent embolization, or continued non-operative management depending on other injuries and the center's resources. A recent study published in Acute Care Surgery in 2023 reported that the atomic guidelines fostered high rates of non-operative management with low ICU utilization and length of stay while demonstrating safety in implementation irrespective of the injury grade. In this patient, I would recommend serial CBC monitoring every four to six hours. To summarize, the most commonly injured 
intra-abdominal organs in blunt trauma is the spleen followed by the liver. Intra-abdominal solid organ injuries are graded by the appearance on the CT scans. Now, higher the grade, the more the injury. Most intra-abdominal blunt trauma injuries are managed non-operatively, provided that the patient continues to remain hemodynamically stable. Pay close attention to localized tenderness, ecchymoses, abrasions, as well as flank tenderness, as well as elevations in liver enzymes or drops in hemoglobin. I do want to also make a plug for any trainees out there. Pradeep and I would highly recommend familiarizing yourself on the guidelines we discussed today, the TBI guidelines, the taxi guidelines, as well as the atomic protocols, as these will really provide a great framework for the management of pediatric trauma. Pediatric trauma, like many diagnoses in the PICU, involves a multidisciplinary approach with close communication. The approach is going to stem outside of the pediatric ICU, as many of these patients undergo long-term rehabilitation in inpatient and outpatient facilities. Now, this concludes our episode on PICU management of the patient with trauma. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.